Good morning. We are glad you guys are here this morning. We are on a week number two of a series that we're doing here tonight called Emotion Commotion. And so this series is all about sort of our feelings uh, and their impact on our lives. Now, I'm not an overly uh, touchy-feely kind of guy. I mentioned that last week. Uh, but I do have to say, man, we cannot underestimate the significance of our emotions or their impact on our lives. We can try and shove them down. We can ignore them. We can stick our head in the sand, right? But but our, our emotions impact us in one way or another. Sooner or later, those emotions will come out. And so we're, we're spending some time, we're spending a few weeks sort of zeroing in on how can we experience these God-given emotions. Because like we talked about last week, our emotions are, God is an emotional God. And our emotions are actually part of being made in his image. It's part of, part of how we were designed to live. And so how can we experience the full of, array of the emotions that God has given to us without having them go over sort of into the deep end and control us? How can we uh, experience them without being controlled uh, by them in negative sort of ways? And so uh, we're spending a few weeks to kind of talk about that and look at that a little bit more clearly. Um, because the reality is I think so much of what we see in our culture these days is sort of emotions run amok, isn't it? It's, our, it's when our emotions control us. We talked about uh, this a little bit last week, but trying to think. Some, some of the uh, emotions that come up the most. Anger, we're going to be talking about next week. Anger is one of those emotions. It too is God-given. It has a purpose in our lives, and yet so often the way we see it play out in our culture, is it a good thing or a bad thing? Right? We see we see explosive sort of anger that does, that does damage in relationships. It wounds people. It, it cuts off relationships. It does tremendous damage. Uh, we're gonna, in two weeks, we're going to be talking about sadness and Depression and some of those kind of things. Again, God-given emotion, but but we see it so often in our society, in our culture these days, being a downward spiral, don't we? That it sort of sucks the life out of people and leaves them stuck in fear and sadness and regret and, and that kind of stuff. And so we're going to talk about how can we deal with how we feel? How can we experience that fullness of emotion that God created for us without allowing them to get blown out into unhealthy proportions that wreak havoc in our lives? Well, this morning, I thought it'd be only appropriate as we are uh, right on the cusp of Valentine's Day, I thought it would be appropriate to kind of focus in on love. Now, love is probably uh, the most powerful, maybe the most significant of emotions. Love, we, we learn from God's book, is sort of the central emotion uh, at, at the heart of God. It's the most significant emotion that drives our relationships and our friendships. It is to characterize our most important relationships in life. The Bible has a ton to say about Love And so let me just give you a hodgepodge of them as we kind of get going here this morning. Uh, Jesus was asked one time, he said, what's the most important part of sort of the Old Testament? What's the most important part of the Bible? If you're going to choose one rule or one thing that was more important than all the others, and Jesus is sort of like easy peasy, right? He says, the, the, the most important is this hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. He said, the second one is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus, when he asked, what's the most important thing? He said, you know what the most important thing in your life is? You know what the most important thing in God's book is? You know what the most important thing on the planet is? It's love, right? Love God with all of your heart, with all that you are, and love your neighbor as yourself. Let's go on. 1 John 4, 7 through 10 says it like this. Listen to this. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is, what's that say? God is love. 
This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This next, next couple are straight out of the mouth of Jesus again, where he's, he's talking to his followers and he says, it's a new command I give you. Love one another in the same way as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And John 15, 13 says, greater love is no one than this, than he laid down his life for one's friends. Proverbs 10, 12 says, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. Where the Bible tells us that love covers over a multitude of sins. Love, according to God, is the main thing in life. It's to define us and consume our relationships, our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. Love is to spill out into the way we live, the way we have compassion on other people. Love, the way God defines it, is meant to be sacrificial. It's more about other people and their good than it is about my own good. Love apparently leads us to forgive others, to cover over conflict and wrongs that are done to us. God's even defined as love, and that love is to impact us and affect our relationships with other people as well. And yet, as we think about it, I wonder how much damage has been done in the name of love, quote, quote. I wonder how much that is called love is not really the same thing that what God talks about. I wonder how many hearts have been shattered. I wonder how many stupid decisions have been made under the guise of love when it's sort of out of whack. I wonder how many marriages have been wrecked because someone fell in love, quote, quote, with somebody else that wasn't their spouse. I wonder how many people have lost their virginity in the name of love. I wonder how many young people have ignored character defects and patterns from the past, warning flags that are going up in their mind, have gone ahead and entered into a relationship, maybe even entered into a marriage with somebody else in the name of lust or even in the name of love, only to regret it later. Love in our culture is so easily distorted and when that happens, it can cause tremendous damage in our lives, can it? So much of what we call love in our world is really just lust or selfish desire or just sort of the tinglys of hormones or emotion. But from a biblical perspective, I'm not sure we can really know or experience or give love to others until we've received and learned what really love is from God. Today, I want us to, to kind of turn to an Old Testament story. We're going to learn some some great lessons about love from a, a guy by the name of Jacob. And I just have to warn you on the front end, this is one of the most bizarre Bible stories ever. <laughs> and so it'll be a little crazy, but stick with me. We'll kind of walk through this together. But I, I think God has some great stuff to teach us in, in the midst of it. We're going to do sort of a little flyover on Jacob's life. And we're going to zero in on a couple of different parts of the story. But as we look at his life, I want you to be looking for and looking at uh, his thirst for longing, his desire for love, and how he gives that love to others, how he receives it himself, or, or maybe doesn't, and uh, also how he passes it on to other members of his family. Okay, so that's where we're going to go. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis. We're going to start in 27. We're going to jump over. His, his story can be found for about four or five chapters in the Old Testament, the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. You can follow along on the Ignite Church app if you've got it, or you can follow along on the screens. The, uh, the scriptures will be everywhere. But just a little background here. We're going to start out with a scene uh, that's, uh, that starts with Isaac, who is Jacob's father. And Isaac is an old man at this point. He's ready to pass on a blessing to his eldest son, his son Esau. And so we're going to pick up the story there, Genesis 27. And uh, even though this 
16 is supposed to be primarily about Isaac and his son Esau, as we'll see. It really becomes a story about Isaac and his son Jacob. So we'll pick it up there. Genesis 27, starting with verse 1, says this. When Isaac was old, his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see. He called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver, and your bow, and go to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food that I like, and bring it to me to eat, so that I may give you my blessing before I die. So Esau, Jacob's brother, goes out to hunt for some wild game and prepare a meal for his father, so that he can receive this blessing, uh, because he's the oldest son. Now here's where it starts to get interesting. Jacob... Uh, and Esau's parents have been playing favorites for pretty much their entire life. Isaac, the dad, loves Esau, his oldest son. He loves him more than his brother. He loves Esau more than he loves Jacob. But Rebekah, the mom, uh, loves Jacob more than his brother. Any dysfunction going on here in the family? Right? I mean, you can't see this kind of blowing up in their faces, can you? But so, so there's this favorites that, that's been going on. Isaac loves Esau. Rebekah loves Jacob. And so uh, uh, Rebecca ends up overhearing this conversation between Isaac and Esau, knows that Isaac is going to sort of pass on the family blessing. He's going to lay his hands on him. He's going to sort of, it's sort of like a combination between passing on um, the blessing of God, but also it's almost that sort of a way of passing on the, uh, the almost like the inheritance of the family. It's, it's something that's special that's passed down between fathers and their oldest sons in the Old Testament. So this tradition is sort of there. He's ready. He's about ready to die. He wants to pass on this blessing to his son. Well, Rebecca hears about it and says, oh, uh-uh. You know, your, your favorite is not going to get the blessing. Your favorite is not going to get that. So she goes and tells her favorite son, Jacob, all about it. It says, you know what? Why don't we do something sneaky here? Okay? While, while your brother's out hunting, why don't you hunt quicker? Like, why don't you go grab something? You bring it to me. I'll prepare it just the way you, your dad likes it. And you can get the blessing. He's, he's old and blind anyway. He'll never know, right? And so they do this whole little sneaky thing. And, and, uh, and Jacob ends up deceiving his father and steals the blessing from his brother Esau. At least listen to this. Uh, we're going to jump to verse 18. It says this. He, Jacob, went to his father and said, My father, yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? <laughs> Your voice doesn't sound quite right. Who is it? I can't see you. Who is it? And Jacob says to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as he told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Now you see what's kind of happening here, right? What does Jacob want more than anything else? What does he want? He wants the blessing. You know what? You know what I think? I think even more than the blessing is he wants the love of, of the father which that blessing represents, right? He's got this hole in his heart that says, man, would you love me? Would you choose me? Would you accept me? He wants, I mean, yes, the blessing is sort of a, a representation of that in his life. There's this kid that's grown up and his entire growing up years, his father has loved his brother more than him. And that does something to a person, doesn't it? That, that leaves a hole in our souls, a hole in our hearts. And so, so this younger brother, more than anything else, 
He's, he's trying to sneak. He's trying to deceive. He'll do anything to get the love of the father. So he disguises himself as his brother. He goes, brings this game in, and he says, would you give me your love? Would you give me your blessing? He risks everything to receive that from the father. Hit the pause button for one second. You say, man, that never happens in our culture, does it? You ever, you ever see people that have a father wound or a mother wound in their soul that more than anything else just want approval. They want to be loved. They want to know their father or their mother's blessing on them. And so because they didn't have it, maybe they would, for whatever reason, maybe during their growing up years, they had a superstar of a brother or a sister. Who knows? Maybe there was something else going on. But for whatever reason, they felt like they were never good enough. They felt like they, they could never be enough to deserve the love of of their dad or the love of their mom. Oftentimes, children that have that kind of gaping hole go on to be high achievers in our culture. They work harder than everybody else. They work their way up the corporate ladder. Or they get promoted at work or they end up owning their own company. They make all kinds of money. They do all kinds of things. Why? Because every time they're doing stuff, they might have a great home. They might have an amazing, you know, beautiful wife or a amazing husband. They've got everything, everything that you could possibly want. And, and really, if you would stop and listen to the cry of their soul, they're, they're just trying to prove. They're just trying to show, see, see, look, I'm enough. I'm worth loving. I'm, I'm worth giving a blessing to. That's like the cry of their soul more than anything else. They're saying, I'm, I'm worth acceptance. I'm good enough. Look at me. I'm acceptable. I'm worth loving. So many high-achieving people in our culture are really performing and trying to earn that blessing that they never received. Trying to earn that acceptance, that approval from their father or their mother figure. Maybe some other figure of authority. They'll do all kinds of things. They'll sacrifice so much. Going after this blessing, going after this love. Would you just approve of me? Go back to our story. What do you suppose could possibly go wrong when you're pretending to be your brother, you know, like trying to fool, nobody could ever find out that he stole his brother's blessing, right? Never. So yeah, as you might imagine, as is always the case, a few minutes later, his brother walks in, Esau walks in, and the whole story comes out. And can I just say, I mean, this is a pattern. So any time that we end up looking for that soul-satisfying kind of love, that soul-satisfying kind of acceptance or approval or blessing or fullness. And we, start, we, and fullness, and we start looking there first to other people or to other circumstances or to careers or to whatever. And we're looking to those things saying, man, if only I had that, I would be enough. If only I received my dad's blessing, then my heart would be full. If only I got that next promotion and had that bigger house and that next thing, then my life would be complete. Anytime we start looking to those other places first, can I just say, you might as well set the timer because the bottom's dropping out of that thing. It will never fulfill you. It will never deliver the way it's promised. It just won't happen. You see it happen over and over and over again. It happens in the story. Esau walks in. The father finds out. How would, and how would you imagine a, a brother might respond to another brother that's stolen his inheritance? Think that would go well? Not at all. 
There's hatred that develops, jealousy. Uh, Jacob ends up running for his life. We, we can kind of see this in verse 41. It says, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. Because he swiped his brother's blessing. And so he said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. My, my father's going to die soon. And then, after that, after my father is gone, I will kill my brother Jacob. I will kill my brother Jacob. And so Jacob runs away in fear. It never works out the way we think it will. So Jacob has to run. He has to hide in fear of his brother's retaliation. So imagine this. Jacob's life was sort of empty before. He had this, this gap in his soul because he, he was longing for the father's love, longing for the father's approval and blessing. And now he's cut off from his family. He's running away. His brother is trying to kill him. Things are just not working out the way he imagined or the way he pictured they would. Then, if you flip ahead a couple of chapters, we read that this, this young man, Jacob, meets the most beautiful woman he has ever seen. Where do you think this is going? He meets the most beautiful girl he's ever seen, and he starts thinking, man, if I could be with her, then my life would be full. Then my heart would be happy. Then I would have all the love I could ever need. Then everything would be as it should be. Do you think this is heading for a healthy, godly relationship? Huh? You think so? Yeah, probably not likely. Let's pick it up in uh, Genesis 29, 16. It says this. Now Laban, the father, had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel, and he said, It's all work for you seven years in return for the younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It's better if I give uh, her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. And so Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. But listen to this. But they seemed like only a few days to, to him because of his love for her great story. It's a great love story, isn't it? It's going to be worth it, right? The text says literally, literally that Rachel had a beautiful figure and she was gorgeous, right? Jacob was more than smitten with her. He was so fixated on her that he worked for seven years and it seemed like nothing because he loved her so much. Let's jump ahead to verse 21. After the seven years is done, Jacob says to Laban, he says, Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. It says, kaboom, right? One, one Hebrew scholar points out that this is unbelievably graphic and sexual for this time period. I mean, imagine even today if a young man would come to a father and say, I want to have sex with your daughter. Give her to me now. Now, I can assure you I am a dad of two teenage daughters, and I can assure you, you come to me that way with this kind of request, it is not going to go well for you. I mean, these, these are the kind of moments that dads have been gathering stories and sort of painting pictures in the back of their heads. This, these are the times that comments start coming out like this. I got a gun, a shovel, and an alibi, right? Like, <laughs> there ain't no way you're taking my daughter, but, you know, they might find your body out back, you know, kind of thing. Or I can remember hearing one time about a young man that was coming to to court a, a dad's daughter. He's coming to take her out and that kind of stuff. And the dad's sitting on the porch in the porch swing, sort of going back and forth. He's got a bullet in his hand and he's got a pen of some kind. 
And this young man arrives and walks up uh, to the dad and sort of pauses, like, what the heck is he doing, right? I mean, so he sort of pauses, and he, the dad's sitting there doing this kind of thing. He's written the boy's name on the bullet, and he flicks it at the guy and says, the next one is going to come a lot faster if you ever hurt my little girl. <laughs> right? I mean, like, that's, and that's in our culture. Like, there's this, there's this sort of mentality of, like, there's some things you just don't say to a good dad, right? Because that dad is going to take you out, man. Like, his job is to protect his little girl, and this is not happening. If that's what it's like in our culture, imagine times a thousand reversing and going back to Jewish culture, right? Several thousand years ago. I mean, this was an incredibly conservative culture. This was not something you talk about. There are books of the Bible that they didn't allow young men to read because they were too graphic. You had to come of age first, right? This, this isn't like our culture where, uh, I mean, all kinds of sex content is available to you at the touch of a button on Netflix. Even if you're just watching a regular movie, like, the, like a, a fairly wholesome movie, we're bombarded by this kind of stuff all the time, right? It's sort of a regular part of our culture. Facebook, you go on there and all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, what am I, this is not good. We're bombarded by it. It was not like that in that culture. This was a very conservative culture. And so for Jacob to come to, to Laban, his, his girlfriend's dad say, give me your daughter so that I can go have sex with her. Jaw-dropping kinds of stuff. This is unthinkable kinds of stuff. The writer here is pointing out that Jacob is just overcome with lust and longing and emotion and desire. And it's all fixated on one place, Rachel. He has lost everything. He is feeling empty and alone and longing. He's been working for seven years. And now he's like, hey, man, I deserve her, right? Give her to me now. Because when I get her, when I sleep with her, then my life will be complete. My, my life has been on a rocky path up to this point, but man, let me sleep with her and all will be as it should be, right? The angels will say, ah, right? It will be a great day. My life, I'll be fixed. I'll be set, whatever, right? I'll be, I'll be set up. Is that the way it plays out, you think? Is that the way it plays out? Now, let's be clear. Anything wrong with marrying a beautiful woman, beautiful man? No, of course not. Anything wrong with... Uh, being really, really, really in love with them, so much so that you would go way out of your way or do, go to extreme lengths to win their heart. That, that's what he does, right? No, I mean, it's a great thing. It's an awesome thing. Anything even wrong with desiring to be with sexually somebody that's going to be your spouse? Not necessarily, right? If it's in check, not necessarily a bad desire, and especially after they're your spouse, not necessarily a bad desire at all. But when we start looking to that other person, looking to them for fullness, looking to them for that, that love that we long for, looking for them for that life, the kind of life and love and fullness that only God himself can bring to our souls. When we start placing all of our hopes and all of our dreams on someone else, when we sort of raise the importance of sex or the importance of relationship or even another, raise the level of another person to that kind of level, chances are it's probably an idol something's wrong, and it will end up doing tremendous damage to our own souls and to our own lives. Again, hit the pause button and just say, man, we don't see this in our culture at all, do we? 
ever see uh, people in our culture, or even people in this room, people that live in my body, or, or in your body, or in our house, or whatever, ever seen somebody sort of place somebody of the opposite sex in a higher level than maybe they should? Ever fixate on sex? Ever put all of your hopes or needs or desires on somebody else? I hear it all the time. Even the language that gets used in our culture, we'll talk about finding somebody that's our soulmate, right? The one that will complete us. The one that will fill our lives with good things. Man, it's sort of dangerous language to use because really, do we really believe that another sinful human being is going to really complete our hearts that way? It's going to fill us with the perfect kind of love so that all of a sudden, all will be right with the world. God is the creator of relationship. He's the creator of marriage. He understands how it works best, but until we find right relationship with God and find what we need from him first, all of our other relationships, and it will be out of whack, and it'll do damage to our lives. It's a billion dollar a year industry though, right? Chick flicks, romance novels, all these kinds of things. They spent time painting pictures like this of the perfect man or the perfect woman that will complete us and give us everything that we long for. And it works. We go to see these, these uh, kind of movies, we read these books in droves because of we've kind of bought into a distorted picture of love like that. Friends, no other person on the planet can fill you that way or fulfill you in the way that our culture says that they will. It simply can't happen. Let's go back to the story of Jacob, go back to, to see how this thing plays out. I mean, how do you think it's going to work out after Jacob sets his desire and his heart and his life fully on Rachel? Was it a magically happily ever after kind of moment? Did Rachel, the one that he was infatuated with, did she deliver what he wanted? No. In fact, you read on and you find out that they actually go through the whole wedding ceremony and he ends up with the wrong wife. Okay, dad, Laban, ends up switching daughters with him. And so he goes through the wedding ceremony, he sleeps with her that night, he spends the whole night with her and doesn't realize it's not the one he, sister he thought it was until morning. He wakes up and he's like, what has happened? What have you done? I've got the wrong wife. There's probably people in the room that have had similar realizations at some point. They thought, what have I done? Right? This isn't who I married. This isn't who I thought they were. That kind of a thing. But listen to this. Genesis, this is a bizarre circumstance. I'll give you that. Genesis 29, starting with verse 25. When the morning came, there was Leah. So Rachel said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And Laban, the father, replied, not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Before the daughters of, or he says, finish up the, the daughter's bridal week, and then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of service. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave uh, him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave a servant Bilhah to, to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel, listen to this, oh, oh we lost it, but listen to this, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and so he worked for Laban another seven years. 
So is that a happily ever after moment? Nah. You see what's happening here, right? The, the pattern is continuing. Uh, Jacob's father loved Esau more than Jacob. He loved Jacob with sort of a father wound in his soul. And so what does Jacob do? He ends up with two wives, and he loves one more than the other. Now, granted, is it a bizarre set of circumstances? Absolutely. But the pattern characterizes so much of Jacob's life and his family. He ends up later in life with a bunch of sons. Some sons he loves more than the others. And so he passes this on to yet another generation, and the pattern continues. Here's what I want you to see here. We are only able to love others with the love that we ourselves have received from God. Jacob passes on the same jaded and distorted picture of love to his wives and his kids that he received from his father. He was probably doing the best he could. He was probably doing, I mean, do, living out the only thing he had ever seen or known. But his own woundedness and his own neediness left him doing the same damage to those he loved as had been done to him. And the pattern can continue and continue and continue from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. We tend to pass on what we have received. Nowhere is this more uh, the case than in our love life and the way that we have been loved and the love that we pass on to others. So Jacob loves Rachel more than Leah. But God allows Leah to have children for years when Rachel couldn't. And so jealousy takes root and he grows more and more tensions begin to build between these two sisters, between these two wives, and finally between Jacob and Rachel themselves. Year after year, they struggled. I mean, there were good times, sure. Uh, they loved each other, sure. But boy, was she able to complete him and fill him and provide all that he longed for and wanted? No. No one can do that except God. Now, the pivotal moment in Jacob's life comes in Genesis 32, and I'm going to zero in on this just a little bit more spend a little bit of time here, but it's this. And I think we'll probably have some scripture show up here in just a moment as we start reading. But it says this, so Jacob was left alone and a man, uh, a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go for it is almost daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed uh, Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. This is an amazing kind of story. Because Jacob's entire life has been one long wrestling match with God. One long wrestling match to find the blessing and the love and the acceptance that he was longing for at the core of his soul. I mean, he wrestled with his brother, Esau. He wrestled with his father and deceived him. He wrestled with Laban to try and gain the hand of his daughter. But none of his endeavors worked. He was still needy. He was still empty. He was still feeling unloved and like he wasn't enough. The relationships within his family were stormy. In fact, at this very time when this, this passage is written, <coughs> 
excuse me, at this very moment when this, this passage was written, his brother is on his way to meet him, and he thinks his brother is trying to kill him. And so he splits up his family, splits up his sons, his wives, sons of all in different directions, hoping that his brother Esau couldn't come and find and kill each and every one of them. He thought, maybe, maybe some of my family will be spared. His dysfunctional love with Rachel and her children, mainly Joseph, would eventually poison their entire family. But for this particular night, as he sends his family away, he is left all alone when someone comes and starts wrestling with him. Well, who's the man that wrestled with Jacob? Who is the one that taps Jacob's hip and, and with his finger and permanently disables him? Who is it that, uh, that didn't want Jacob to see his face at daybreak? Or he would surely die? Well, the author makes it pretty clear that at least in some way, the person that he was wrestling with was God himself. God himself had come down in some form to wrestle with Jacob. And this is really the climax of the story and the climax of Jacob's life. Because at long last, Jacob is finding himself wrestling with the right person. He's wrestling with the one who made him, the one that really could fill him with love, that could bring wholeness to his soul, that could bless him and make him new. For the first time in his life, Jacob isn't looking to women or fathers or brothers or approval or land ownership to find what he's longing for. For the first time in his life, he's in the right place. He is seeking fullness and blessing from God himself, the only one that can really give what he needs. He's holding on tight, and he refuses to let go. I will not give up. I will not let go. I will not stop until I find what I need in you. He's saying, God, would you bless me? God, would you love me? God, would you accept me? Would you fill me? I'm not letting go until you do. And this is the moment, listen, this is the moment, friends, when he actually finds what he's looking for. He receives his blessing from his maker. He receives his blessing from the perfect father. His name gets changed in that moment, which is actually a pretty normal thing when people have a face-to-face -face encounter with the living God. His name has been known as Jacob, which means he grasps or he deceives, which has kind of characterized his life up until this moment, hasn't it? But instead, God gives him a new name, which means Israel, which means he struggles with God. He gives him this new name as a reminder that he had finally wrestled with God and received his blessing. It is to characterize his life from this moment forward. The new name will serve as a constant reminder that striving and deceiving and looking anywhere else will never deliver, but that life and blessing are only found face to face with the living God. He names the place that the, they had this wrestling match. He named it Peniel, meaning the face of God, so that he would remember, so that all of his descendants would remember that he had been in the presence of the living God and had been transformed. He had received his blessing. He had received his love. I wonder how many of us here this morning need to learn the same lesson that Jacob learned. We've been grasping for so many different things, trying to find life and love and fullness. We've been, uh, may have even been deceitful at times, trying to pretend that we're somebody that we're not in order to, to feel worthy or feel important or feel loved. Maybe we've been wrestling with other people trying to get what we need from them. Maybe in the name of love, we've sought after somebody else. 
and some form of distorted love or lust or desire has driven us into the arms of another, but they haven't delivered what we thought they would. Maybe in your pursuit, maybe you wrecked a relationship, maybe you've destroyed a marriage. Maybe you've ruined a friendship, maybe your family is in shambles, and there's a wake of just destroyed relationships in your past. I don't know, maybe you grasp after material possessions, thinking that life is found in houses and cars and toys and stuff. Maybe you've been looking for approval or success, soul satisfaction to someone or something else. Whatever it is that you've been grasping after or wrestling with, I want you to hear this this morning. You will only find what you crave. You will only find what you long for. You will only find that love that your soul needs face-to-face with the living God. You'll never find what you're looking for anywhere else until you are holding on to God with both hands and crying out at the top of your lungs, God, give me your blessing. Would you show me your love? Would you pour out your grace and your favor on me? I need you and no one else. You'll never find what you're looking for until like Moses, you're grabbing on to God and screaming out, God, would you show me yourself? Would you show me your glory? You'll never find what you're looking for until, like David, you're looking to God and holding on with both hands and crying out, God, I need you like a a man dying of thirst in the wilderness. I need you like water, like air to my lungs. Would you bless me? Would you fill me? Would you pour your love out on me? I need you more than anything else, more than anyone else. You are what I crave. You are what I long for. Our hunger for love and fullness in life is meant to drive us face to face with the living God. Only there can we find that living water. Only in him can we find that blessing. Only in him can we find the love that we crave and that our souls long for and need. His love is unlike any other love on the planet. Unlike anything else that we can receive in this world. His love is infinite. His love is completely unconditional. It is poured out, shoveled out on you, even when you don't deserve, even at your worst point on your worst day. His love is there. There's one more passage I'm just going to share with you, three verses. It's short. It just kept going over and over and over in my head this week as I was thinking about love and God's great love for you and his great love for me. It comes from 1 John uh, chapter 3. It says this. It says, how great is the love that the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Let me just stop and go back. The word that he uses there for love is agape love. It's, it's, a, it's a word for God's unconditional, perfect fullness of love that God has for you. How great is that kind of fullness of love that God has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Just love that
extravagantly and generously poured out his love on you and on me again and again and again and again. It's a, it's a present continuous, it's an ongoing sort of picture of him just pouring out and shuffling his love on you again and again. He has shown this extravagant love by coming for you. He has shown his incredible love by coming for you in the person of Jesus, by even dying for your sins and for mine. He thinks you're worth dying for. That's how much God loves you. The Bible tells us uh, that he, he rejoices over us. Zephaniah, I think his grace says, the Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He takes great delight in you. He quiets you with his love, and he rejoices over you with singing. That's the picture of how much God delights in you, almost in a giddy sort of fashion. He loves you like that. The Bible says that he loves you with an everlasting love, like we sang earlier. A love that breaks the patterns of what has been passed down to you and to me. A love that transforms us, that perfects us, that makes us like our Father in heaven. A love that enables you to love others the way he has loved you. With that same extravagant love that he has lavished on us. A love that forgives and is full of mercy and full of grace. A love that is sacrificial, that chooses the needs of others even above our own preferences. A love that's not dependent on how anybody else treats you, but loves them because of who you are, because of who God is. A love that's unconditional. That is his, is God's love for you. That's the kind of love that he lavishes on you and on me again and again and again. Why are so many marriages, why are so many relationships in our culture screwed up today? Because we have this order all messed up. Because we're looking to people to be our saviors, to bring fullness and joy and peace and that kind of perfect love, and they can never deliver, never. Why relationships crumbling around us? Because so many of us have never really experienced that unconditional love and grace of God for ourselves. We are looking to get what we need from other people, and they could never deliver in a million years. But God's love for you, his grace for you is available today and tomorrow moment by moment. He wants to fill you with his love. He wants to pour out his grace on you again and again. That kind of love will transform marriages. That kind of love brings hopes to, hope brings hope to relationships. It's unbelievable. I've, I've shared before, there's a Harvard study I read a number of years ago that tracked couples that did three things that, that had Christ sort of at the center, that were focused around his love for them, and that drank that in moment by moment, day by day. So he tracked these uh, couples that had these three things in common. They regularly prayed together. They regularly read God's book together, right? They were regularly reading God's word together, and they regularly worshiped together. They found that the divorce rate for those couples was 1 in 1,287. It's less than one-tenth of 1%. One couples, married couples, that fall into that category don't get divorced. And you know at least partially why that is? I mean, there's lots of reasons to get. You know partially why that is? Because they have been filled by the living God. They are looking to Him to find what they need and want for Him first. And instead of coming needy to another person saying, gimme, give gimme, give gimme, give I need you to do this for me. I need you to do this for me. They are coming filled up at least sometimes, right? But they're coming filled up and saying, let me pour, let me share with you the 
we start and are filled first by God's unbelievable, amazing, and perfect love. And we hold on to him with both hands, and we cry out, God, I need you. God, would you bless me? Would you pour out your love on me? Would you fill me and lead me and guide me? I am yours. When we start there, oh, man, all of our relationships are transformed, and they are filled with his love. Makes all the difference in the world. Well, I'm not sure where you're at with God today. I'm not sure how he might be prompting you or what he might be saying to you. Maybe this morning, more than anything else, you'll let me God is tapping you on the shoulder and say, man, you've tried it on your own. You have gone your own way for too long. You have tried to, to get what you, what you need and what you long for from other people or other things. And today is your day. We need to quit striving to find those things elsewhere. You just need to come and collapse before God. Open up your heart and just cry out, God, I need you. Would you come? Would you go? Would you come and direct me? Would you come? I, I've made a mess of things on my own, but would you come? Some of us are just going through rough patches, and uh, it's discouraging, it's frustrating, we feel alone and abandoned and discouraged. Maybe today, more than anything else, you just need to hear those words. The Father has lavished his great love on you, and he looks at you and he calls you his son, he calls you his daughter. He delights in you, he rejoices over you, he quiets you with his love, and he rejoices over you. based on your performing or being good enough, not based on anything, but because he loves you, he made you, and he's that kind of God. Maybe your name just needs to be reminded to receive that love afresh. I'm not sure what God's saying, but I know, friends, that, that the love that we need, the love that we crave, 
in our own souls, the love that we crave and need in our relationships with one another and our relationships with our spouses and our boyfriends, girlfriends, the relationships we have with our kids or our parents, whatever else. Healing and reconciliation, restoration, all that we long for if you can, Jesus. If you can, by turning to him, if you can, with his great love that he has poured out for us. Let's turn to him now. Father, that's Jacob, we would hold on to you, that we would pursue you, that we would be discontent to let go and do business as usual, but that we would uh, hold on until we, we see and know and receive your love afresh. Father, would you forgive us and cleanse us in so easy and so often ways, turning to idols, looking to other things, to that which we can do. Thank you, Lord.